Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Hi, everybody at PrimeMed. Welcome to this recording on prediabetes and metabolic syndrome 2020. My name is John Tyke. I'm an internist, endocrinologist, and a nutrition nut, um, staying in practice at Harvard UCLA now for about 30 years. Um, first slide. You can see obesity is an expanding problem. Um, you can see this gentleman, it's uh, quite uh, overweight. Um, if you look at the criteria there, you can see that he has um, many of the factors of the metabolic syndrome. Uh, waist greater than uh, 40 inches in a man. Um, triglycerides above 150. Blood pressure above 130. Fasting blood sugar at 110 or higher. And an HDL under 40 are all criteria that meet the metabolic syndrome definition. Three out of the five are needed. In the next slide, you can see how you, one can approach this. So if you get a random blood sugar of about 110 on a patient, um, as you can see, uh, that's the diagnosis of prediabetes. Um, by the way, the blood sugar of 110 predicts that you'll probably become a diabetic, barring that you don't gain any weight uh, or start a new exercise program, uh, in about 15 years. So it's kind of a slow process. But at 110, it's reasonable to offer um, nutritional intervention, lifestyle changes, uh, modifications such as weight loss, exercise, diet changes. Um, you can, according to this graph, you can actually use uh, metformin if you want. Uh, it's commonly used by the residents. I'm kind of gun-shy of that. I wait until they get diabetes, but you're more than welcome to use that. You could use a carbose if someone really wants to lose weight. Um, I'll show you some of the data on using pyoglitazone or rosiglitazone, which I might reserve for unique few people. And then, of course, the GLP-1s are not approved for uh, prevention of diabetes, but they are approved, one of them is approved for weight loss, uh, so you could consider that. Next slide. So you can see um, these are my estimates for risk based on metabolic syndrome. If your blood pressure is elevated, you about double your risk. Elevated triglycerides, we're not sure it, how much risk is associated with this. We know above 1,000, it's a risk for pancreatitis. We do know if the H still is low, it's quite a big risk, and I'll show you that. Um, waist circumference increases your risk because it identifies um, likely insulin resistance. And a fasting blood sugar uh, in the 100 to 125 range uh, typifies prediabetes. Now, if you look at this slide, this is an old slide, but I like to show this because my wife actually has a blood pressure about 110, and that's the blue line here. Uh, the 120 systolic is here, and the 130s are here. And so she's going to live about, I have a 1% chance of dying over 12 years. Now, my blood pressure as a guy is, was in the 130s. It's a little better now, but it was in the 130s. You can see I have about a 12% chance 
of having a cardiovascular event over 12 years. So it's really important. These small changes in systolic blood pressure seem to play an important role in preventing uh, disease. This is what the SPRINT trial showed. They aggressively treated non-diabetics and got their blood pressure down to 120. So that's the new target for most non-diabetics is 120. And they did this with some benefits and some complications. What they showed is that if you take an average 67-year-old hypertensive patient and drop their blood pressure to 120, it's a lot better than a blood pressure of 140. So they reduced the primary endpoint by 1.6%. That means they had to treat 63 patients to prevent one of these, MI, unstable angina, stroke, heart failure, or death from cardiovascular causes. Yes, heart failure actually dropped from 2%, 2.1 down to 1.3%. Yes, cardiovascular death dropped from 1.8 to 0.8%, but because of this aggressive blood pressure management, there was a loss of GFR, and um, more people were in CKD3. You can see it's about 1% increased in the control arm and a 3.8%, so numbers needed to harm 37. I wanted to throw this in because we're using this medication more and more commonly in our diabetics and in our heart failure patients, but the SOT2s have been approved for heart failure with reduced EF, even if you're not diabetic, and they also have the side effect of dropping your blood pressure, and because you pee out about 90 grams of glucose a day, you lose about three to 400 calories of glucose a day, so you're kind of on a diet and people lose weight. So with the weight loss, they drop about four points systolic, some up to six points systolic blood pressure. So this is actually a unique way to lower blood pressure in someone that may need this medicine and other indication. So the metabolic syndrome, we talk a little bit about triglycerides. It's a complicated story. I think the elevated triglycerides are a reflection of the non-HDL cholesterol, the kind of LDL particle that has some risk. So if you look at triglycerides here, you can see in this slide that the mortality risk stays pretty constant if you're under 500. Um, there's a little bit of change here. The authors actually say this was significant, this small delta here. But for me, if your triglycerides are above 500, you can see the mortality risk is clearly out of sync with everything else. So for me, my, I'm a fan to treat triglycerides above 500, and of course, keeping them under 1,000, ideally under 750, because you do prevent the, um, 750 is right around where you saturate your ability to clear triglycerides, and that's when the triglycerides can go sky high. So we have an exciting new medicine to treat cardiovascular disease. It's not a statin and it doesn't lower LDL cholesterol. It's a medicine that's kind of half of fish oil. Fish oil is EPA and DHA and a lot of other stuff. And if you just give the EPA component, which is this sister drug called isopetanol ethyl, you give two grams twice a day, you can reduce um, uh, cardiovascular events. So it reduces it from 22% down to 17. So it's a 5% absolute risk reduction in MACE, which is MI, stroke, cardiovascular death, revascularization, or unstable angina. So this was the very first randomized blinded trial to show benefit. And to my surprise, actually, the FDA approved this as an indication to reduce risk. This is only the second trial that it's been tested in, and this one was, one was an open label. So in the JELUS trial, they took 18,000 Japanese patients, and they gave them 1.8 grams of fish oil, and the, EPA, the MACE event dropped 
by one by 0.7 percent. So based on these trials, one not blinded and not, and this was open label, I believe, and this was double blinded, they've actually approved this drug for the treatment as an add-on uh, for reducing risk of patients with a known CAD. So I'm a proud co-author of this paper that just came out this month. Um, it's kind of a hypothesis paper. Dr. Budoff, who's the lead person uh, here at Harbor, uh, tested people, um, took, I think it was around 90 people and completed, I think, 60 or 70. And they randomized them to ethyl, isopentanyl ethanol four grams a day or to actually a placebo. And they tracked the change in coronary plaque. And you can see the coronary plaque, the low attenuation plaque, decreased by 17% on the fish oil. Fibrous plaque decreased. Fatty fibrous, fibrous plaque decreased. Total non-calcified plaque decreased. And total plaque decreased. What happened on the placebo is the low attenuation plaque increased. It increased by 100% over 18 months. So fish oil, this EPA component of fish oil, the half of the fish oil, if you will, actually reduces the progression of plaque and it actually contributes to some regression of plaque. I mean, we don't really know the mechanism. Um, we don't have any idea of how this is working. So the metabolic syndrome also has a component of low HDL cholesterol. And this has been touted to be a huge risk factor in the past. You can see this risk factor just jumps out of the blue here with an HDL that's 25. And even here, with an LDL at 220, this is a huge step up in risk of your HDL 25. I don't necessarily believe that it's the HDL now. I think it's probably your non-HDL cholesterol that's actually playing an inflammatory and a plaque-progressing role. We don't really know that, but until recently I was talking how HDL was very important, but I think it's the non-HDL cholesterol that's probably playing a role along with LDL. So LDL and non-HDL cholesterol are kind of the two components of the progression of heart disease. We do define um, metabolic syndrome with the HDL under 50 in a female and under 40 in a, in a male. So you can see the risk if you're down here under 30 or in the 35 range, it's a huge risk. This five-fold increased risk in cardiovascular disease is similar to already having a heart attack. So diabetics have the three to five-fold risk of having heart disease and a really low HDL it can be missed by some clinicians, and it has a huge risk, in my opinion. Now, raising it, I'm not sure, helps. We've tried that with niacin trial, the aim it high, and we actually caused harm. Um, we've tried it with fish oil, and it doesn't really work unless maybe you have a low HDL and a high triglyceride in your male. It actually shows harm in a female by giving phenofibrate. So I'm not sure raising HDL is our target anymore. Anyway, a third thing to talk about is increased waist circumference. Um, cardiovascular risk is increased. And the prediabetes is the last thing to talk about. Prediabetes is defined with the blood sugar above 110, um, 100 to 125. And uh, historically, um, it was part of the metabolic syndrome to get that component. You need to have a fasting above 110. So this is your risk if your fasting is 110 versus, say, a fasting of 90. This is your risk of a fasting of 126. And this is a risk of your diabetes, uh, five-fold increased risk after five years of having diabetes. So almost a three-fold risk in pre-diabetics and a five-fold risk after you've had diabetes for five years. This is why we give all our diabetic statins, or many of them get statins, even the young adults. This is a formula I came up with to make the 
understanding uh, how fasting blood sugar relates to A1C. Now, the fasting blood sugar reflects today's glucose control, and the A1C reflects three months in the past. So today may be fine. So if your fasting is 100, your A1C should be a 6. And if you add 29 to each one of these, you increase it by one point. Now, for simplicity's sake, I increase this to 30. So 30, 60, so 190 is a 9. And if you see someone in the emergency room with a 310, likely when their labs come back for an A1C, it'll be 13. So this is a typical note I wrote recently. Uh, this is a phone visit of a 63-year-old uh, patient who uh, she's has some obesity. She's 36. And I write here, this is my assessments that I write in my chart. Fall risk, walks with cane, denies fall since last office visit. Educated patient about being high risk for fall. Advised her to use the cane at all times. Hypertension well controlled with benazepril 10 and chlorothalidone 25. Denies any side effects. Metabolic syndrome taking atorvastatin 10. No side effects. A1C is now 5.8. Discussed. Advised low fat and carb, low carb diet in daily 30 minute walks. Obesity, BMI 35. Exercise reinforced with increased consumption of vegetables and decreased fat and carb in the diet. Osteoarthritis of the shoulder denies pain, well controlled. Osteoarthritis of the T spine takes Tylenol as needed. She's got osteoporosis, which is, uh, shows a T score of osteopenia in L1, uh, minus 2.6 at L2. The total hip is, is 7.3, well tolerating a lenonate with calcium and vitamin D. Now, this uh, one vertebral body doesn't make a diagnosis of osteoporosis, so she has other areas that have osteoporosis as well in her spine. I just forgot to put them in here. Prediabetes, A1C was um, 6.3 on the last visit. Now it's down to 5.8. And uh, she's on a Torva, so her LDL is kind of corrected. And she'll check labs today, and I'll see her back in six months. I wanted to show you this shocking slide that I got from people at my work. I didn't realize this, but 46% of Californians have prediabetes. Um, so it's very common. You can see it's most common in the Pacific Islander, and it's a little less common in the Asians. Uh, remember, 5.7 is not the criteria for metabolic syndrome, but it is an elevated A1C. Metabolic syndrome is 100 or higher. Likely A1C is 6. So you can have both metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Remember, you, don't, you can have the other components of that, which make you at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. The diabetes prevention trial, the lifestyle intervention, uh, targeted a minimum of 7% weight loss and maintained weight. They had 150 minutes of exercise per week. That's about two and a half hours of walking or maybe 30 minutes a day. They had individual case managers. They had frequent contacts, structured state-of-the-art uh, diet lessons, 16 core curriculums that were taught, behavioral self-management, supervised physical activity, toolboxes, adherence strategies, phone calls, visits, tailoring of materials, strategies to address ethnic diversity, and finding extensive workout of training, feedback, and clinical support. So they threw the kitchen sink at these people to lose weight. And it actually worked. You can see here, if you do lifestyle, you can see the purple here. They drop nicely. And they actually see metformin actually drop nicely as well. And you see placebo stayed the same with A1C around here. You can see the mean A1C. This is the fasting sugar. The mean A1C actually went up, as you might expect. And uh, the, in the patients that did lifestyle, it actually did the best. So metformin kind of delays... Uh, your diabetes by two years, at least according to this graph, and lifestyle may push it back four years. 
So here's your indications according to the ACE guidelines is you can use metformin for prediabetics. Um, you can use a carbose or if you can consider other treatment strategies if you want. Now if you want to try a unique strategy, this was tested um, with pyoglitazone in the prevention of diabetes. And um, probably our, our most brilliant diabetologist on this earth is DeFranzo, and he did the ACT NOW study. And he basically um, reduced the rate from diabetes from 7% down to 2% over a two-year period. Um, and basically, when he gave pyoglitazone, the HGO went up seven points, okay? And then you end up getting five versus 16% got diabetes. So you can see numbers needed to treat to prevent one case of diabetes is eight people over two years. The disappointment in this, or the, the con to this, the, 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 the downside to this, is that there's some weight gain. And there's a little bit of more peripheral edema. So you cannot use this in osteoporosis. Pyoglitazone reduces serum insulin, so it doesn't ever cause hypoglycemia, but it does reduce liver fat, and it reduces IGF-1 levels, and this causes... Uh, uh, more bone loss, so you lose your your C, you reduce IGF one, the old name being sedimentin C, and you likely make less bone and increases your fracture risk. Rosaglitazone metformin was also tested to prevent diabetes. This combination was given to patients with IgT who were at high risk for diabetes. Sixty percent were women, age fifty. They were given two milligrams of rosy and five hundred metformin BID for four years. New onset diabetes was seen in 14% versus 39. So 25% absolute risk reduction. You give, so if someone really wants to prevent diabetes, they're totally nervous about it, um, you know, as a physician, you're allowed to do things off-label. And you could give them rosaglitazone and metformin. You could give them pyoglitazone and metformin. You could push back the development of diabetes by many years. The annual incidence of diabetes would drop from about 10% per year to 3.6% per year for the entire uh, study period. No change in beta cell function was observed. No weight was increased at the four milligram per day because it was included with metformin. But there were more bone fractures. So again, you should not be using a TZD in people that have osteoporosis. What's amazing about this drug is that pyoglitazone, this class of drugs, seems to prevent recurrent stroke. Um, this is a uh, study where they randomized people um, with prediabetes um, and they de decided whether they had uh, developed a CVA or not. And a recurrent stroke dropped from almost 12% down to 9%. That's almost an absolute 3% drop in stroke. Pyoglitazone, um, by reasons that are kind of, I'll explain to you in the next slide, prevents kind of the, the plaque rupture and the subsequent stroke that occurs in the CNS space, or it prevents the local rupture of plaque inside the CNS that could cause a stroke. How does it work? Well, we have one slide showing here that if you take people really well-controlled, they're reasonably well-controlled now, on pyoglitazone, give them pyoglitazone or give them glomepiride, and treat them uh, for 24 weeks, you can see the A1C gets better. It goes down to 6.8 in both groups. But which group do you think dropped the blood pressure? This blood pressure was dropped by the pyoglitazone arm. Which group raised HDL? The raised HDL was the pyoglitazone arm. Huh, interesting. HDL goes up, blood pressure goes down. This must be good for the carotid. In fact, it is. So the carotid thickness, which is a measure of posterior carotid uh, fat and cholesterol, stays the same, uh, and, it, and it actually stays the same over time 
when you're giving glimepiride. But with these beneficial change in blood pressure and HDL, the carotid plaque actually significantly shrinks. So what happens is pyoglitazone is a unique drug in that it removes fat from the carotid and it probably sticks it in our skin. It also moves fat from the liver uh, as used in NASH or for NAFL, and it sticks it in the skin. It removes fat from the beta cell, which probably improves your insulin signaling um, as well, and it takes that fat, the visceral fat, and puts it in the skin. So let's talk about preventing cardiovascular disease in pre-diabetics. So I showed you this trial earlier with the graph, but there's a 11.8 versus a 9% stroke rate. This is reduced when you randomize people to 45 milligrams of pyoglitazone. This was published in the New England Journal, good paper, and the problem was there's a slight increase in fractures. So while you may save um, 3%, so you may prevent a cardiovascular event or a stroke, you do increase the risk by about one out of 50, one out of 33 of increasing um, a fracture. There's a small amount of weight gain, but no unmasking of heart failure. With this drug, as you know, it does drop your systolic blood pressure and it does raise your HDL. So I just wanted to mention that in addition to this drug, there's a new class of drugs called the SGLT2 inhibitors, and both EMPA, CANA, DAPA, and ER2 drop systolic blood pressure by about four points, just like pyoglitazone does. They increase HDL by about two to four points, just like pyoglitazone does. They drop a weight by about four pounds, which pyoglitazone does not, uh, all had cardiovascular benefits except for the recent trial where they gave urticoflocin, and that drug actually failed to meet its primary endpoint. So we have some uniqueness where EMPA, CANA, and DAPA are wonderful drugs, and we have ER2 being a question mark. And in fact, today, I saw a patient who needed a little more potency, and I took her off of ER2, and I added EMPA plus linagliptin, the combination. So for her, I'm switching one pill. She doesn't know what's switching but I'm giving her a new drug, the linagliptin, which will drop her about 0.6 in A1C. But the EMPA actually has some proven cardiovascular benefits, which I hope will help for her. Now let's look at time over time. So if you look at the diabetes prevention trial at four years, they started at a blood sugar 106 and they ended at a blood sugar 106. So basically lifestyle and metformin kind of bought you four years of kind of like normal-ish blood sugars where you don't creep back up. But at 15 years, you can see the fasting blood sugar started at 106 in the in the placebo arm, and it went up after five years about five to six points. If you look over time, then, uh, fasting blood sugar eased from 112 to 120 over 10 years in the placebo arm. So again, fasting blood sugar increases by about one milligram per year. So if you're pre-diabetic at 112, you have 13 years, 14 years before you become 126. So you will get diabetes, but it might be in 14 years. So I just wanted to plot this out for you. Um, you can see fasting blood sugar changes over time. This is a 16-year follow-up, 15 to 16-year follow-up. And you can see the blood sugar in the placebo arm. Is this beautiful? It goes straight up. We have a measurement here. We have a measurement here. So it's actually one per year. And if you give uh, lifestyle or metformin, you kind of buy yourself a uh, five-year free of um, any change in blood sugar. But um, metformin tends to have about a five-year duration, and I'll show you that on a paper I published. And you can see while you're on metformin, you kind of parallel that decay, so you still go for about one a year. If you're on lifestyle, we kind of fall off the diet, fall off the exercise plan, 
and you're, you're fasting, but you can go up like 1.5 per year. So you can see it goes up a little faster. So this is a paper I published of two years ago now um, looking at durability, and I want you to look at the orange line. So if you take someone with an A1C8 and you give them one drug, metformin, you have this beautiful drop where you drop down to uh, you know, an A1C7 and you stay in good control until you get there at five years. What's interesting is if you give someone a TZD, and this is actually rosy data, uh, you can see the TZD actually drops you nicely. And with monotherapy out to five years, you're still not quite back to baseline. So I projected these lines out, and it looks like a TZD will work about eight years before you return to baseline. And then also with the newer data on the SGLT2s, I planted out, plot out the canagliflozin data here. And so with canagliflozin, you drop from eight, and you kind of trend back up, and over time, you actually cross right around seven years. So these drugs work for five, seven, and eight years. Um, so in a joke, and kind of in this article, I kind of kiddingly said, well, if I'm taking care of you living in Alaska, I'm going to come up and say hi to you with an A1C8, and I'm going to give you metformin. And then when I see you back in five years or call you back in five years, you'll be back at eight, and I'm going to give you uh, now a uh, pyoglitazone. And then I'll call you back in um, now eight more years when you're back to eight, and I'm going to give you now a generic drug called dapaglifosin or empaglifosin, so you won't have to pay so much money. So I can get like 21 years of good control if you just know what diabetes is, slowly progressive disease, that kind of, you know, the blood sugar keeps going up over time, and you can kind of treat this wonderfully if you have a knowledge of the physiology. So what about weight loss? There's a big fan now to do this weight loss. Well, in, in the, lean, the, direct lean, the direct trial, lean, um, they actually published um, that people lost 100 kilos, and they put them on a 185-kilocalorie 85, 85 diet, diet and 1,500 steps per day, and they dropped their blood sugar. Um, the ones that dropped their blood sugar, um, sorry, they dropped 20 pounds. They didn't drop 100 kilos. They started at 100, but they dropped 20 pounds. And sure enough, they dropped their blood sugar 20 points. So one pound of weight loss is equal to one point drop in fasting blood sugar. So you have, you're buying yourself a year for every pound you lose. So if you're, if you're pre-diabetic at 115 and you lose 10 pounds, you'll probably go down to 105. And then you can you know, take metformin and cheat and keep it at 105 for five years. But anyway, it, you understand the physiology. It's really fun to fix this. And uh, I'd love getting any emails or phone calls or tweets to me to help answer any questions. Uh, so treatment for all for pre-diabetics, I've got about three slides left. Lifestyle is the best choice. Give a meter. Target a fasting of 100. Metformin I don't use because it's just too easy. I wait till they get to 126 or 130, and then I put them on metformin. Or if they have cardiovascular risk or heart failure risk, obviously they get an SGLT2 inhibitor. Um, Polyglitazone is used for pre-diabetics, but only in people that have stroke, TIA, or maybe NASH, or very high risk for NASH, or that have proteinuria. Some pre-diabetics will have really bad albuminuria, and pyoglitazone is wonderful. It reduces albuminuria by 50%. So the SGLT2 drugs drop it by, this drug drops it albuminuria by 50%, and pyoglitazone also drops it by about 50%, 30 to 50%. And of course, ACEs drop it by about 30%. Um, GLP-1s can be used as an option, but they're not approved for prediabetes, but they are approved for obesity. One is, and you could use that. All the glutides seem to be cardiovascular reduction. 
The extenotides don't, they're cardiovascular neutral, but the glutides, uh, the glutide, daboglutide, aboglutide, semaglutide, they're all the glutides for cardiovascular benefit. And I'm using a lot of the oral semaglutide now, but that did not show cardiovascular benefit. It wasn't really powered to test that, but it's likely uh, in a bigger trial to show benefit. So I think oral semaglutide is actually an option as well. S2 inhibitors are indicated if you have heart failure as a non-diabetic or as a pre-diabetic, but they're not indicated for pre-diabetes. So you can use the SGLT2 inhibitors um, for people that have heart failure with reduced DF, and that'll help drop their blood pressure and drop their blood sugar. And it looks like it's going to prevent CKD, but this approval has not been given by FDA. So you cannot use these to prevent CKD in non-diabetics, at least not yet. So in summary, diabetes is a progressive disease with about a one milligram per DL increase in fasting blood sugar per year. Treat prediabetes with aggressive lifestyle, diet, meat, or exercise. I think metformin's okay, but it's too easy. Um, and then people may not change their lifestyle. Aspirin, by the way, looks like it doesn't work. Um, in the JPOT trial, it actually caused more bleeding. And I'm not sure we should use it in diabetics now. I think maybe... Plavix or Plopritigrel may be a better option, or maybe a statin if you want giving a statin when they have the 7.5% risk. So when you're treating um, hypertensives and they're pre-diabetics, uh, maybe give um, drugs that are approved or diabetics. For instance, SGLT2 inhibitors drop blood pressure. GLP-1 drops blood pressure a little bit. And both have cardiovascular protection. Diltiazem is a good blood pressure drug. It drops proteinuria nicely. Um, aldactone also does that. I didn't put it here. I actually forgot to put it here. Polygodazone's okay if you have stroke or TIA prevention um, or you have NASH. Um, weight loss meds are good if you have chronic knee pain from OA and you want hypertensive and blood pressure treatment. So I wanted to just show one slide, a, a fact that I learned this last month. Um, great slide. Uh, this shows your relative risk for end-stage renal disease based on changes in urine albumin. Now, this is a urine albumin, and this happens to be the median, happens to be 16. So the urine albumin is 16. No one in this room would blink about treating it, and in fact, hopefully just give an ACE if they're a diabetic. But a urine albumin is 16, has, doesn't, doesn't have much risk, and you can see the risk for renal failure goes down even if it's lower than that. So if it's actually 5, it's better than 10, better than 16. But if you're in albumin's 256, you're right here. You have a tenfold increased risk for end-stage renal disease. Amazing. Tenfold. So definitely this is a red flag. A urine albumin above 200 is kind of scary, and that's what I teach my house staff. Um, mortality risk, by the way, is actually almost threefold at that same urine albumin of 250. So while we don't know if treating urine albumin reduces the risk, it's kind of what you will. It's kind of my 2020 new LDL. So my MACR is kind of my new, you know, LDL cholesterol was important for me in the 90s and the 2000, 2010. Now that's kind of all fixed by most people. And I think MACR is kind of my new LDL to kind of chase it down. So I'm trying to prevent disease. So I'm really happy to get the urine albumin down under 30. So thank you very much. Uh, prevent what you can uh, by doing a lot of preventative information and training and treating of your patients and then treat the rest to reduce complications. So please add me to your Twitter account. I'm at Dr. Metabolism. I also have at Dr. UCLA or UCLA Doc, but I don't 
really use that Twitter account. Call me with any questions, 424-306-4575, or please just email me. I'm really happy to have an interaction with you. I love doing one-on-one teaching. That's why I went into medicine is to be a good teacher. And thanks a lot. Take care. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.